The old pilot's playing tales. We rejoin Sir Glenn as he is about to deploy his squadron to the Gulf. Did you have to pester anyone to get that deployment? I think I was pretty convincing that we <laughs> that we should be involved. Um, yeah, we can all argue about you know the utility of it, but I think the proof was in the pudding that once we got out there, the product that we we were producing was highly valued by different sections of the community, the intelligence community, um, and people on the ground as well. Now, your squadron wasn't operational. The equipment you were using wasn't fully operational. Was that a concern to you? Yes, it it clearly was. But we had a a very experienced squadron, in truth. And I picked a, a blend of people... Uh, to go out on the deployment. The other half of the squadron who were left behind actually very quickly then became involved in um, trying to bring into service the tiled pod, so the designator pod, because Tornado at that stage didn't have any designation capability at all. That's designation for? For for laser-guided bombs. So the only people who could designate at that stage were were the buccaneers with the old pay-spike pod. So half of the squadron I left behind actually started going down to Boscombe Down. We had two tile pods, which they worked up, and they eventually then deployed um, after the war had started, but they then deployed down to Dubuk um, to operate in the designator role. If I'm not mistaken, you actually went into theatre with civilian contractors, the men who were looking after your recce pods. Uh, what was that like, and how did you have to change your perhaps modus operandi to look after them? A, a, it was fantastic that the company was willing to deploy its people, because Duran, although it was pretty safe, um, we did get uh, scuds fired at, um, at Duran, certainly for the first part of the war, and there were several Patriot batteries, which the light entertainment was to go, go out and watch the Patriots shooting down the scuds of an evening. But they were absolutely invaluable because it was only utilising their knowledge and um, looking at how things Im- could be improved from one sort to another that we actually got the reliability of the kit um, to the standard that we needed it. So they were really fixing and developing it in theatre during a war? And, and helping us maintain it, so that because um, they had just you know, more intimate knowledge of it. Excellent. What were the kind of missions you were being asked to undertake? Um, it, it was a variety, and you'll be aware that uh, the detachment got the name the Scud Hunters. In some respects, that was a bit by accident. Because of our unique capability... And the threat that the the Scud um, capability across in the Western Desert uh, was a, a strategic issue for the coalition because of the threat to Israel. A lot of effort was focused in how do we neutralize that threat. So we did spend some time across in the Western Desert trying to hunt out the Scuds. And on one of the first nights, one of the, the aircraft more probably by accident and design, actually stumbled across a scud. So we acted as a degree of a deterrent, and we did go out scud hunting for quite a few missions. But we also did a lot of work for um, special forces. So as they were planning ingress routes into um, Iraq, 
um, either by on the ground or by helicopter. We tended to go in down those routes in advance so that we could see if there were any enemy uh, forces. And as the planning for the major ground offensive um, went, got underway, we went into what, what was just to the west of Kuwait, um, into the Republican Guard areas, to really try and find out what the Iraqi forces' uh, dispositions were. So I suppose you know, those were the three main categories. We, we also did some battle damage assessment as well from some of the, um, after some of the uh, mud-moving squadrons had been attacking targets. Now, I gather, um, you know, flying a tornado at night using TFR uh, would be an enormous challenge, but you decided to make it just a little harder. You weren't happy with the height the TFR was flying you at, I gather. Well, the aircraft was designed that it could fly completely hands-off using terrain-following radar linked into the autopilot. But the minimum height you could dial in to the terrain-following system was 200 feet. And when you f- were flying over the desert, depending on the, on the TFR radar, it would fly you at probably about 220, 230, maybe even slightly higher. And there were occasions, because of some of the threats, like SA-8s, um, that that probably wasn't going to be low enough. So we all came up with slightly different ways of, you know, so how are we going to fly if you needed to? You didn't say you had to do this all the time. But if you needed to, how could you fly lower? And there were different techniques that people developed. The way I personally and my backseater decided to do it was to use the flight director system that that we had in the aircraft fed off the terrain following radar but actually to manually fly the aircraft by effectively using that symbology but tracking a bit bit lower than you would normally do to fly at 200 to 230 odd feet and that could get you down you know provided you were sensible about it that could get you down to about 150 160 feet which was a much um, safer sort of environment to to be operating if you were confronted with an SAA threat. What sort of speeds are we talking about? Um, Again we used to sort of cruise around about 480 to 500 but if you needed to the jet would go would easily do 550 um, 560 odd. We used to to carry because all of our equipment our recce equipment was internal so we could carry four fuel tanks which gave us quite a long range but virtually every mission we did included air to air refueling so you'd normally take off go up to a tanker fill up um, and then descend down to low level because we had to operate at low level throughout the campaign Um, and then quite often you come after you egressed you go back up to a tanker refuel again and then come home so let me get this right Um, you're at night in the dark, in a hostile uh, environment, hand-flying the aircraft at 150 feet and around 500 knots over the desert? For some of the time. (laughs) You didn't want to wear wear yourself out. (laughs) If I had a hat, I'd be taking it off right now. Um, Perhaps you could work your way through a sort of you remember as being a particularly uh, interesting one so we can get a feel for what your uh, day in the life of a... Uh, 13 Squadron recce pilot was? 
Well, I think one of the ones that sort of sticks in my mind, really, was I mentioned about flying. We were tasked into the Republican Guard area. These weren't particularly long sorties because it was just to the west of Kuwait. Um, but typically what would happen, we still went up to the tanker, um, filled up, flew as a singleton, uh, as I say, always at low level. This was quite an interesting one because it was the first aircraft, tactical aircraft, which had gone into the Republican Guard area, so nobody really knew exactly what was there. And my backseater and I sort of had a, had a bit of a plan if um, you did get hit by some enemy fire, be it AAA or a SAM system. And we'd figured out that we would, wherever possible, be pointing where we could, be pointing, at the, pointing south towards the Saudi border so that if you did get hit, you could at least try and um, be pointing in the right direction <laughs> for um, a safe, safer environment. Um, but, so typical mission, up onto the tanker, about 20 grand. Um, the weather, actually, during the whole of the campaign was quite poor. People don't realise it in the desert, but some of the most dangerous bits of the mission were actually doing the air-to-air refuelling at night. Um, so you go up on the tanker, you, you'd fill up, you then descend down to low level, and there were very um, clear uh, routings that you had to to follow to get into Iraq, so you deconflicted with um, our own defences and such like. So you'd be down at low level by the time you cross the border. This particular mission, we th- we decided we were going to go as fast as we could for, to keep the time um, over enemy territories as, um, as short as possible. But actually, it was a really bright moonlit night over um, over Iraq. And although we used to carry night vision goggles, we didn't actually used to use them. But the, the moon was so bright, you could virtually visually fly, even though this was sort of two o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. So anyway, we, we did our routing. We did all the um, points of interest that we'd been tasked to, to fly. And actually, the other really vulnerable part of the mission, we always felt, was actually as you egressed out of... Um, Iraq because you were transitioning from 200-ish feet up back up to medium altitude so you could then enter the transit corridor back to um, back to base and that was a we viewed as a vulnerable period because you're obviously back up at medium altitude didn't quite know what the sound systems were up to and there was also our own defenses as well be it patriots or um, our own fighters as well and there was always indicate there was always the problems of identification, of course. So no, that was it was a really interesting mission. Saw a lot of kit um, once we got back on on the ground and were analysing the data, um, and it provided us with a bit of reassurance, to be honest, that we could operate in that area with you know, a reasonable degree of survivability. What were the areas where you were engaged the most by uh, the Iraqi forces? It was really interesting, Nick, actually. I mentioned that um, the, the bomber squadrons, particularly on the first few nights of the war, uh, were flying at low altitude. They were dropping JP-233 for, to close down the airfields. 
normally flying as eight ships. Um, and the Iraqi airfields were massive, much bigger than the Soviet airfields, which is obviously what JP-233 was designed um, to go against. And they were also very heavily defended with AAA. So it was quite a shock for uh, those formations who went in at low altitude, particularly the guys down the back of the formation, because the first pair probably got through okay. Then the defences were woken up, and there was a, a lot of AAA and short-range air defence systems as well. And we lost you know, a number of aircraft on those first few nights. That pushed all of the bomber crews up to medium altitude after about 10 days. So they were all operating in the, in the sort of low 20s. Um, because of our kit, we were operating, we still had to operate at low altitude. And in some respects, I think that was tactically really helpful for us because we operated either as singletons or pairs. And we got in and out of all most of our targets um, without any real difficulty. We didn't really wake up the defences. By the time they realised an aircraft had gone through, we were gone. So it was actually, from a tactical perspective, it was um, quite a good way to operate, alone and unafraid, so long as, <laughs> as you, they say. <laughs> so long as you didn't go around and had to take another look at somewhere. Yeah. What kind of level of intelligence did you manage to achieve and what quality was it? How good was it? When the kit was good working, I mean, it really was exceptional. Um, and as, as I said, because you can record it, you can actually then replay it in the air. Although in truth, one of the, one of the unreliable parts of the system was the ability to data link sections of the imagery um, back to the ground, which we never really successfully did. But in truth, most of the intelligence that we were gathering wasn't of... It wasn't required in that sort of really time-sensitive period. So we, we had time to get back to base, have a good look through the um, through all the imagery, and then you know, produce the reporting that we needed to do. So I think I think we did prov we did deliver the sort of capability that we had hoped we would. There were problems with the kit, but um, it was there's nothing like using equipment in anger to get it improved. There is no, no doubt in my mind, we accelerated the speed with which the kit improved by taking it out on operations. Now, um, your citation for your Distinguished Service Order mentions that you quickly demonstrated aggressive enthusiasm for the task. How would you have described it? I'm not sure I'd have quite described it like that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's what people join the Air Force, what I joined the Air Force for was to, that's the proof of all the training you've done is to go out on operations. Um, it was quite surreal actually, particularly operating at night because Iraq was pitch black. There's virtually no cultural lighting whatsoever. Um, and, and I remember describing after my first trip, somebody said, so what's it like? Um, I said, well, it's a bit like doing your instrument rating. Um, because it was, it was just pitch black. Um, the tornado is fantastic, low, low altitude, brilliant ride, um, very smooth as well. Um, 
Yeah, it's great, great experience. So it was great to put all that training to real work and very valuable work. Yeah, yeah. You went pretty deep into enemy territory at times. Uh, what was your plan had you been shot down? Well, we had our, um, you had your ghoulie chit, um, which was meant to give you safe pack- passage, and you had your um, bunch of gold coins. Perhaps you might explain uh, what a ghoulie chit is. Gulichit is, um, it was written in Arabic and it was meant to say, you know, this is, um, you're a combatant and under the the um, Geneva Convention you're meant to be returned in one one piece. Um, with, with your with, ghoulies. With, your, with your, all your tackle. Um, I'm not sure that would have held us in good stead and, and the money was there to buy people off if necessary. And you had your... Your nine mil pistol, of course, which would have saved you. <laughs> so you had a strip of gold sovereigns. I'm trying to work out why they just didn't take the sovereigns and... They probably uh, would have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, did, were you allowed to keep them at the end of the war? We were, I, I think, I was just, when you asked me the question, I was, I was trying to recall, I think we were allowed to keep one of the sovereigns, provided you return them all um, at the end of the war <laughs> as a souvenir. <laughs> Well, if there's some blanket stacker out there who's looking for a loose gold squadron, uh, gold sovereign, sorry, we now know where it is. You flew 22 reconnaissance missions. Now, that was the most that any recce pilot on active service uh, flew. Um, did you uh, find an elusive scud, and what do you think was your most valuable discovery? Do you know, the, the most, I didn't, I don't recall finding a scud. Um, the most satisfying trip I did we did um, was actually the ones we were doing for this, the special forces because you you, you know you talk to the units and it was very much a mutual plan as to you know what the what were they after from you we were trying to make sure that we could deliver that and use the kit in the most appropriate way but you felt as though you were doing something you know, very intimate with them rather than just collecting intelligence, um, which would then go into the great, you know, it's just going to be another piece of intelligence to build up the whole picture. So I, I personally found those those missions the most satisfying. And we had, when we came back from the Gulf War, we had a very good, long-lasting relationship with with um, 22 SAS, um, and, and indeed all the, S, the SF guys. Um, so, yeah, that was for me, the best bit of the whole operation. Now, um, what did the uh, American forces think of the Tornado uh, recce capability? I think at the time, you've got to realise we were, it was a capability nobody else had. And, and interestingly, the RAF had always seen the value of tactical reconnaissance. Um, so we had pods on aircraft, we, we clearly had a big recce pod on the on the Jaguar, um, the Harrier had a, a recce pod, and the Tornado had a, a recce pod as well. Um, but we al- we also had the um, the, in- the internal sensor suite as well. So the Royal Air Force had always maintained that tactical recce capability. The USAF had actually given most of their tactical recce capability up. They were very good at strategic reconnaissance, clearly. Um, with things like U-2, Missile 71, all their space-based assets. But we did fulfill that sort of niche capability in many respects. That said, the USAF had 
well, they'd gone through that period of RF4s and such like, but um, most of that had been given up. So they they felt it was useful, just as it was in the second um, Gulf War as well. We have reached the point in Sir Glenn's interview where we moved on to other subjects. For the moment, I just want to thank him for giving up his valuable time and for relating such an intense and demanding period of his life so well. By the end of the war, the 13 squadron detachment that he led had flown some 128 reconnaissance sorties. However, this was not the squadron's only contribution, as we will find out next time. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.